Hi, well, welcome back to our series that we've been doing on current cultural issues, hot topics that we uh, see in culture and society today that we need to have a biblical understanding for and build a response to. In this week's lesson, we're going to cover personal purity. Personal purity, this is something that's not highly valued in our culture, and uh, we need to take a look at this as believers. We're going to take a look and see why we or why there's a need to have personal purity. We're going to look at some hazards and consequences uh, that come along when we do not strive to be pure. And then we're going to look at some practical applications that, and actions that are going to help us to remain pure in our lives. Well, I want to start off by taking a look at the TV parental guide ratings. I want to do a review and go through them. You're probably familiar with these. If you watch television or your children do, they watch movies or shows, uh, you're probably familiar with these ratings. You see them often. But let's do a quick review and talk over them before we start this lesson. So you can see here I've listed the TV ratings. Um, again, these should be pretty familiar with you. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk through them. Okay, why? The why rating is um, it's aimed for a very young audience, okay, including children from the ages of two to six years old. If you go to Y7, uh, that is for children ages seven and older. It's most appropriate for anyone that is seven and older. G is for general audiences. Um, it's suitable for all ages. It's not specifically geared for children, um, the content, uh, and it's, it should be suitable for all ages. PG is, stands for Parental Guidance, and it contains material that parents may find unsuitable for young children. Parental Guidance is recommended in any show or movie with this rating. Uh, next we have TV 14. All right, this is not for children younger than 14. There may be unsuitable content for anyone less than 14 years of age. Then we go to mature. This is a rating for those older than 17. Okay, mature is intended to be viewed by mature adult audience. And it's, it's not suitable for children under 17. Then you can see at the bottom there, I listed as well, um, that you can see a guide to thematic elements by viewing the content descriptors below the rating um, by viewing the designated alphabetic letter. So this is telling you a little bit more about what the content and themes are going to be uh, throughout the show. So D contains sexual or suggestive dialogue. L contains coarse or crude language. S contains sexual content and V contains violence. FV, there's also a rating FV which stands for fantasy violence and this is exclusively to the TVY7, to the kids programs. Um, so these are the ratings, you're, you're probably familiar with them, um, that uh, we see on our shows and our television trying to help us um, decide what to watch and what to allow our children to watch. So as you watch movies and TV shows, I, I would hope that you're paying attention to these different ratings, uh, that you, 
you don't just flip a show on with no regard to what the content is and um, how it's being rated. I, I kind of find a problem with the rating system, especially the mature rating. When you hear that, oh, this, this show or movie is labeled as mature, well, it seems more like an invitation to actually watch and engage in the show. Well, this is geared for mature audiences. Well, I want to be mature, so I should be able to handle that. Instead of like warning, it's, it's almost like an invitation, like, yeah, I'm a mature adult, I can handle this. When in reality, if we're taking a look at the content in these shows and movies that we're watching that are just filled with violence, unwarranted violence, or sexual content, really, a spiritually mature person would show maturity by choosing not to watch these shows. Um, it's the opposite. Uh, if, if you're spiritually mature, you're not choosing to engage uh, in these uh, in this type of content to present that to yourselves. Uh, it's, it's exactly the opposite. I want to remind you that these uh, TV parental guidance ratings are from the secular society. These are not believers that are coming up with these ratings. So for them to say that, well, um, anyone 14 and older is allowed to watch this because there's minor sexual content involved. Well, as believers, no 14-year-old or 15-year-old should be watching um, a show with that kind of content. We believe differently. We don't think that's appropriate. So we have to keep that in mind that these are not believers that are coming up with these ratings. Um, we should be doing our best to strive to remain pure. We have a, a high uh, standard level that, that God is calling us to. We are to live holy lives. We are to live pure lives. And we shouldn't be intentionally placing ourselves um, in the view of some of this content. Uh, sometimes we go through life, we come across things that we can't avoid. But to sit in your living room or in your office and watch on a screen some of the content um, that is available today is not worthy uh, of a believer, of a Christian. We are called to abstain uh, from these things. So personal purity is important. It's an important matter. We find this throughout Scripture, and that's how we're going to start this lesson. Let's look at uh, why there's a need for personal purity, or actually why we need to have a purity strategy, because we do need to have a strategy to help us remain pure. Ever since the fall, uh, we've been living in a world with a distorted reality, and especially a distorted view of sexual things. And this is still true today. And as the church, as believers, we are the keepers of truth and reality. We have the truth of God's word, and uh, we're the keepers of that. But the church hasn't always uh, done the best. The church during the medieval times, the, the medieval ages, was teaching that sex was a necessary evil. And there's even some today that are teaching that sex is dirty, it's disgusting, there's just an, it's an obligation you need to fulfill. But this just wrongly distorts God's original plan and his, his still current plan for sex and marriage. 
Well, combine that with, um, with temptation to fall into sin. We still have a, a, a sinful nature. Uh, and especially in the world around us with all the temptations and, and the way culture and society are, uh, it's very important that we set up a strategy to remain pure so we don't fall into temptations, we don't give in to our desires and commit sexual sins. Well, I think of Joseph from the Old Testament whenever I think of purity. He is a great example for us. In the, in the face of a great trial, a great temptation, he remained pure, uh, basically hanging on to one truth uh, from God's word. So let's go ahead and take a look at Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. So Potiphar's wife has been begging and asking Joseph to come and have sex with her. And Joseph replies to her this, There is no one greater in this house than I. And he, that's Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So Joseph realized that to do this, to, to, to have sex with Potiphar's wife, was a great evil and it would be a sin against God. Well, this truth that he understood motivated him to stay uh, sexually pure. And just like Joseph back then, we today, with the right kind of motivations, with the right kind of truths, it can help us to stay pure. It can motivate us in any kind of temptation that we face today. Listen, Joseph's temptation that he faced with Potiphar's wife is just as real as any kind of sexual temptation uh, you will face today. We are going to look at truths that motivate purity. And we're going to look at three different truths. And the first one is God created sex. That is, God created sex. It's important to know this truth because then we will know where to look. We know that we need to look to God for his guidelines and expectations. So to help us remain sexually pure, we have to understand that sex is not evil. It's uh, designed from God. God is the author uh, for male and female to enjoy sex within the context of marriage. And to say anything otherwise is to speak contrary to what God has said. Now, the, the married female in Song of Solomon, when she discovers the immense joy and pleasure of sex, she begins speaking to the unmarried people, and she tells them that um, you're going to have this longing and this passion to have sex, but you need to wait until you get married. Don't give in to it sooner. Wait and save it for marriage. God created males and females to enjoy that sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. So, People have these feelings, these sexual feelings and desires, and it's given to them from God. These, these emotions are natural. He designed that, us to have them. This helps us to speak about things in regards to sex and not act as if it's a secret or it's forbidden to talk about. 
Now, if we realize this truth that God created sex, we can now talk about it honestly and openly about what the Bible has to say. And just remember that God is the creator and the designer of it to begin with. Secondly, God designed humans to respond sexually. Both sexes have strong sensual feelings. Now, this didn't catch God by surprise. That we have these feelings wasn't a surprise to him after he created us. No, he created us to respond sexually. Um, but just because we have these strong uh, sensual feelings and passions doesn't mean that we have to act upon them and give in. So no matter how strong your uh, urges are and your passions, um, you can choose, both men and women, not to violate the boundaries that God has set up. And what are the boundaries? Well, it was to only have sex between one man and one woman inside the covenant of marriage. Um, and when we give in, when sexual when a sexual struggle is lost, James tells us that it was because of our heart. Let's go ahead and look at what James had to write. He says in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The person who knows and experiences God's presence is the one who is able to deal with his own lust and the lust of the world and not give in to his flesh. We know this from Romans chapter 8. Let's read 8, uh, 6 through 9. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Well, this is an important truth, since a believer's heart can be easily swayed to give in to the desires of his flesh. The attractions of the flesh are all around us. Remember from our lesson on addiction, that idolatry is at the heart of the problem. It is a heart problem. Well, the same choice is true when it comes to bowing to God or bowing to your selfish desires that exist. To remain pure, we must submit to God and not our fleshly desires. Thirdly, God's will is abstinence from sexual impurity. Okay, God's will is abstinence. God has not changed his mind over time in regards to sexual things. Sex is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. They are to enjoy one another. Uh, they are to have sex regularly and consistency for the mutual pleasure of both. And there's a picture and a bond of oneness. Right, that's part of God's design, that there be um, a bond of oneness between the two. Well. If that's the, the goal, if that's the idea of God, to have that kind of relationship, then it's very important to us to abstain from anything 
any kind of activities uh, that would hinder that relationship from eventually uh, coming to be. All right, does that make sense? We need to be careful that we honor that uh, so we can have that relationship of oneness. We also need to take a look at another reason which we find in 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, verse 3, we read this simple and clear scripture. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God wants us to abstain from sexual immorality because we are to be sanctified or we are to be set apart for him. Sexual immorality drives a wedge between us and God. And sexual immorality comes in many forms. It includes premarital sex. It includes adultery and incest. It includes bestiality and homosexuality. Although God's word is clear, it seems the current culture hears something far different. Same-sex marriage is now legal in a, in a number of states. Homosexuality has come out of the closet into the living room. And we can understand how the world doesn't adhere to God's clear commandments, but the church should not be following suit. Not too long ago, the term virgin used to mean someone who has never had sex before. But now our current culture is even changing our terms. They're, they're changing what our terms mean. Virgin, now in current culture, means anyone that has not had sex with penetration. They're changing our vocabulary. And many churches, in a lot of studies, many churches are finding that Christians are starting to use this new vocabulary. And it's wrong. God has set up boundaries, and we are not to keep pushing the envelope to see how much we can get away with until we sin. God clearly calls for abstinence. We are not to have sex. We are not to give in to our desires before uh, the marriage covenant. So I have talked about the need for us to have a purity strategy and three truths that should help motivate us to stay pure. Now I'm going to talk about some hazards to sexual purity. And the first hazard is deceptive secrecy. All right, the deception of secrecy. Just like a person who doesn't know how to swim needs to be very cautious and aware when around deep water, so does a believer need to understand the vulnerabilities of secrecy, okay, and the deception that comes along with it. Well, the adulterous couple, when they are meeting together on those afternoons where nobody knows what they're doing, okay, there's no prying eyes, they think it's done in secret. Or the teens who are out after midnight in the dark, in the car, at the park, who think nobody knows what's going on. Or the husband, up late at night in front of the computer screen, clearing his browser history so his sleeping wife doesn't find out what he's doing. They're all partaking in the same thing. They're all under the cloak of secrecy. They're all thinking to themselves, no one will ever know what I've done. It's a secret. They won't find out. That's a deception. That's a, that's a clear deception. Let's take a look at a couple verses in Proverbs. 
Well, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Chapter 15, verse 11, Shoal and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. So here's the problem. When you think you're acting in secrecy and nobody knows, you're wrong. The whole world is laid out in front of the Lord. God knows. He sees what you're doing. You cannot hide anything from Him. Nothing can ever be done truly in secret. There's no secrets from God. So when you're partaking in that secret sexual sin, you're deceiving yourself. When you think that nobody's going to find out what you're doing, it's harmless, nobody knows, God knows. He sees it all. You cannot keep a secret from Him. Along with deceptive secrecy, there's the hazard of restless boredom. Boredom, or just fatigue with life, are also hazards of sexual purity. When a man is bored or is just tired from, from working hard a lot of hours, he doesn't like the way he feels, and he's going to look for someone or something to change the way he's feeling. He wants to feel alive. Well, with anything sexual, it creates a chemical change in our bodies, and it's going to provide the rush that he's looking for. It's going to be a, a good and pleasant change to the way he feels. The problem is that rush doesn't last. It's not going to last. David knew this. In Psalms chapter 32, um, he tells us how he was feeling. After he committed his sin with Bathsheba and it was exposed, he, um, he shares with us how he was feeling during that time. We find this in verses 3 through 4 that David writes, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. So once that rush wears off, just like David, your emotions will become burdened with guilt. Another hazard is emotional pain. Emotional pain and hurt are among other threats to purity. When a married woman experiences hurt at the hands of her husband, she will withdraw emotionally, and this creates vulnerability. She is now emotionally susceptible to the advances of maybe a co-worker or another man in her life who appreciates her. He always looks good. He always treats her well. But before she is even aware, her ache is now uh, being relieved by this other man. So emotional pain is a hazard we need to look out for. Coming up with rational excuses is another hazard. Rationalizing is dangerous. So the engaged couple who are close to their special day, they're counting down the months until they're finally going to be married. Well, they just love each other so much that they rationalize that it's okay to get undressed and spend time together, be together, as long as they don't go all the way. Well, that's a danger. 
if, if you start rationalizing things, that should be a flag. That's a hazard. As Christians, we need to be aware of our weaknesses and take the steps necessary to help keep us out of danger and keep us from stumbling into sin. Let's talk briefly on the consequences of sexual sin. It's interesting how many times God's instructions for sexuality within the proper bounds also include the consequences for such transgressions. So in the Old Testament law, it was written that if two single people were caught having sex with each other, they were to marry and never divorce. The man uh, had to pay a large sum of money to the father, to the girl's father. Um, now the father could refuse the divorce if he wasn't pleased with the man and who it was. He could refuse the divorce, yet still require that large sum of money be paid to himself. These consequences were put in place to help people think twice before violating the law. In Proverbs chapter 5, we see what will happen to the person who commits adultery. In Proverbs chapter 5 verse 11, we read, and you groan at your end when your flesh and your body are consumed. If we go down to verse 22, it says, His own iniquities will capture him who is the wicked one, and with the cords of his sin he will be held fast. So the person who commits adultery will suffer physically and will become trapped in his own sin. Verse 14 tells us what will happen to his reputation. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. So once his adultery is discovered, his reputation will be in utter ruin. Well, let's turn to chapter 6 and look at verses 26 through 29. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can man take fire in his bosom? and his clothes not be burned? Or can man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. If you are going to commit adultery, you need to realize you will be burned by your actions. Don't think in your head that you can do it and get away with it. You're not going to be the first person to commit adultery and not have consequences. You will be burned. There will be pain involved because of your actions. If we go to verse 32, we see it says, The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking a heart of wisdom. He who would destroy his soul does it. Again, if you think you can navigate cheating on your wife and getting away with it, you're a fool. You're lacking in wisdom. You're out of touch with reality. So we know there is a need to have a purity strategy plan. I talked about three different truths that will help to motivate us to want to stay pure. And then we talked about five hazards uh, that could affect us when it comes to sexual purity. But now I'm going to talk about actions that we can take. We're going to look at actions that maintain purity. And we are going to look at the biblical strategy for purity. While knowing truths that maintain purity is important, just knowing right and wrong in our mind is not enough. 
I mean, King David certainly knew God's clear commandment that adultery was wrong, but he still slept with another man's wife. Knowledge, even of God's will, is not enough to keep you pure. Knowledge and a relationship with Jesus must be combined with certain actions in order to stay pure in today's culture. So, strategy number one is guard your heart. Everything a believer does, everything he thinks, everything he doesn't do, comes from the heart. Proverbs is most certainly correct. It says, guard your heart with all diligence. The heart must be watched over diligently because it gives birth to every evil. A husband does not click on a porn website or a wife commit adultery without first having a heart that allows for such action. The body is not going to do what the heart doesn't want to do. The problem is always the heart, and it must be guarded constantly to keep it from pursuing what is unholy. Guarding your heart involves treasuring God's word in your heart. Psalm 119, 9-11 is very popular, but do we actually strive to put it into practice? It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it tells us that if we treasure God's word in our heart, it will bless our life and it will make it fruitful and prosperous, at least from God's perspective. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. A person who treasures God's word will not be easily moved to evil. The person who does not commit adultery is the person who has not lusted after someone else in his heart first. Not only do we need to guard our heart, but we also need to guard our eyes. There is no denying that in today's culture it is highly visual. Only a blind person is able to avoid all of the sexual images that are everywhere. The unguarded heart is susceptible to such images, whether on a screen or in person. To keep those images from getting a hold of your heart, you must guard your eyes. And this is not just for men either. Women are visual creatures as well, but they just might react differently. To guard his eyes from looking lustily at women, Job made a covenant, or a promise, with his eyes. Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Solomon, when giving advice to his son, told him to keep his eyes directly in front. Proverbs 4.25-26 says, let your eyes look directly ahead, and even let your eyelids be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the track of your feet, and all your ways will be established. 
he was telling his son that he needed to have intentional planning. Plan on ahead of time, looking forward, because even taking a quick glance to the left or to the right would cause him to stumble and suffer, just even from a quick look. Another biblical example of someone who did not guard his eyes is Samson. When he saw a woman whom he knew he shouldn't get involved with, he allowed his heart to follow his gaze. He's an example of a man who had a strong body but unguarded eyes. And these eyes cost this judge his life and ministry. All of us need to know our own visual weaknesses and temptations. We can eliminate a lot of the exposure that we will have, and we can be held accountable for what we view. But all of it camouflages the real battlefield, which is the heart. The eye will be willing to seek and gaze at such things because the heart is not guarded. The heart is allowing the eye to wander off the path and feed the flesh in a field of sexual imagery and fantasy. The next strategy is to make no provision for the flesh. There is a saying that you feed the monster you hate. Well, when we break God's commandments, when we cross his boundaries that he has set up, after the sweetness has worn off, the spirit will convict the sinner and guilt will follow. When a person responds correctly, there will be a hatred of what was done and promises of never doing it again. But these promises only last as long as the monster's hunger stays fulfilled. When the monster feels the beginnings of hunger again, some people will resist feeding it a whole meal. They think that if they just offer it a few snacks, it will quell its appetite. But before long, the beast is hungrier than ever and demanding a banquet. This is the same dynamic at work in our flesh, the part of every believer that has a propensity to sin. To deal effectively with the flesh, Paul commands believers not to make any plans to satisfy its lustful desires. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He says, Make no provision. Feed it nothing. By giving into the flesh through the eyes or heart, one feeds the very monster that should not be fed at all. The sexual monster must not be given a forbidden morsel that will only increase its appetite for more. Another important action is to flee sexual immorality. Now, there is something unique and mysterious about sexual intimacy, even illicit sexual relations. And even though you might not be married in the actual act, even forbidden intercourse binds two souls together. This is a truth. This is a biblical truth we find in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.16 tells us this. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. And it's also a sin against your body to do this. Look down at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. 
God's plan for resisting sexual immorality is to flee its presence. Flee like Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. Sexual sin is the only sin believers are told to flee from to escape its hold. We need to listen to God on this and not think that we are strong enough to resist it and be okay. God tells us to flee. Well, maybe what's some practical fleeing that could be done today? Well, maybe it's getting rid of cable channels with explicit content, or using internet only with accountability software, or not allowing yourself to be with someone of the opposite sex alone, especially a coworker or uh, when you're on a business trip. Whenever you find yourself in a situation or an image is presented, turn and flee. There is no exception we can make for this. Our last action step is to enjoy your spouse. Part of the strategy for sexual purity within marriage is to enjoy a regular, vibrant, active, mutually pleasurable sex life within your marriage. God commands such a life. He provides physical intimacy within marriage as a protection against sexual immorality. Paul spoke about this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 5 says, But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. From this passage, whose responsibility is it to keep the physical aspect of marriage fresh? Well, from this passage, both of them, both the man and the woman, have that responsibility. While sex and marriage is not a complete protection from sexual sin, it does provide a safety net for sexual desire, which, remember, is God-given and it's natural to all. As we read in the Song of Solomon, a man or woman who is intoxicated with the sexual love of his or her spouse does not need to look to another source for fulfillment. So personal strategy. How much thought have you given to a purity strategy? If you haven't, today is the day to begin being intentional in obeying God to keep yourself pure. God's word is both the source of our purity strategy and the means for carrying it out. We can't ever hope to be pure if we aren't consistently in God's word. Look through some of these passages again if you need to uh, in order to review. Treasure God's word in your heart so that you may not sin against him. I want to end with one more thought here, and it's this. Set a high standard for purity in your home. Set a high standard. I hope it's high because you can undermine scripture if you set a low standard of purity in your home. You know, your kids are always watching. There needs to be a high standard set. And I'm going to talk to fathers right now for a moment. Fathers, it's your job and your role and your responsibility to 
control what's coming in and out of your household. You need to know what kind of books are coming into your household and being read by your kids. You need to know what kind of video games, what they're doing on the computer, what kind of movies they're watching. And you regulate that. You decide what's allowed and what's not allowed. They're going to look and follow your example. And if you watch family movies or let them watch things that are inappropriate and have uh, sexual content in it or scantily clad women, they're going to find that acceptable. You need to set a high standard uh, for purity and not mess around with it. Uh, wives can help out with this, um, but that bar needs to be set. We shouldn't be watching shows to fulfill our fleshly desires. Um, and we need to lead by example. So again, fathers, just set a high standard. Make it clear uh, to your kids that we, we don't find this type of content uh, acceptable and it's not allowed in our house. So just a final thought for you. So ending with our biblical response to this current cultural issue of uh, purity is just simply this. Follow God's strategy for a pure life. Follow God's strategy for a pure life. We have some three truths to help motivate us. We have all those action steps. We also have the consequences. It's, it's okay sometimes to do things just because of the consequences that would come from those actions. But we need to follow God's strategy for a pure life. Our memory verse for this week is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God wants us to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Well, thank you for joining me for this week's lesson. Next week, we're going to talk about feminism's misplaced purpose and value. We're going to look at the roles that God has uh, designated for men and women. And ultimately, uh, we're going to learn how we're going to be accountable one day to Christ uh, for how we lived and fulfilled that role. So join me next time as we take a look at feminism and learn a little bit about it.